Welcome to Kate's Take from galsguide.org. Each week I talk about a movie that has shaped my life, and I'll teach you how to dissect a movie and find the life lessons hidden within. Welcome to the live Kate's Take recording. Um, I can't tell you how happy I am to be back to the show. Um, I actually had a four-month break between uh, doing episodes, uh, but we're back. This is our second year in a row at Starbase Indy. So last year we covered Star Trek The Motion Picture, the slower-than-slow motion picture. Uh, and so we're now covering Star Trek II, The Wrath of Kate. I mean, Khan. I know. I just thought it was fun, because coming back is great. Uh, but in all episodes of Kate's Take, we look at universal messages that are hidden within movies uh, that we can kind of pull out and you know use in our everyday lives sort of thing. Uh, I am more of a Star Wars girl. I have covered every single one of the Star Wars movie. Very excited for Rogue One. However, I married a man who is a Trekkie. <laughs> so this is Josh. He is doing these shows with me. Uh, mostly because he has a lot more insider knowledge <laughs> that I kind of lean on. And when I have some serious continuity questions, <laughs> he is the one I get to ask about. So, uh, so Josh, what is your favorite Star Trek film? It's Star Trek Two. Is it this That's one? Convenient. That it is, is convenient. convenient. All right. So your favorite one is the one that we are talking about today. It's, yes, it is. Okay. Although I do really like, although you said it was awfully slow, I did like the motion picture. Yes. It is slow, but I like the... The kind of the idea of we sent something out and now it's coming back. Yeah. So I like that was the part that I really dug on. There was like a good ten minutes but in like the all, first one I really liked. But like all seventies shows <laughs> or seventies movies, it is it is slow. It is like we both fell asleep during Surfaco. I mean, we have a hard time staying awake during seventies movies. It's just the way they're cut, the way the story is. Yeah. So and you know, the motion picture very much has that seventies movies feel to it. And it, well, uh, didn't it have six minutes of opening credits, and then it had like another ten minutes of just the ship? Yeah, <laughs> there was a lot of there was a lot of just long shots of ships. From every angle imaginable. <laughs> so if you cut a lot of that out, you could probably make a, a really good movie out. Yeah. Well, the interesting thing is in Wrath of Khan, I noticed they used some of those exact same shots. Yes. <laughs> they recycled a lot from money the saving. motion picture. Money saving. Money saving, or they already had it. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's in the can. So, uh, so let's dig into the movie. We'll dig into Wrath of Khan. Um, so yeah, last year we covered the painfully slow one. Uh, this one is much more fast pace. Uh, it's wonderful details, uh, wonderful themes, actually. The three main themes that we're going to kind of talk about and break down today are old age, revenge, and the Kobayashi Maru. <laughs> Those are the three we're going to kind of dig into. Um, two of the themes actually show up right away in the movie. Uh, the movie opens, if you remember, because we kind of give you a little bit of a refresher if it's been a while since you've seen it. Uh, it opens with the Kobayashi Maru in a training session. Uh, where we meet Savik, who is played by Christy Alley. This was her Savik. I always like saying Savik. It sounds better. Can I change it? No. No. I like pronouncing things wrong. <laughs> but played by Christy Alley, and she is a captain in training, right? Uh, so she fails the Kobayashi Maru, as we find out most people fail it the first time. Because there is no winning. There is no winning. But who did not fail it? Uh, Kirk didn't. Oh, Kirk didn't fail it. Oh, look at that. So we'll come back to the whole Kirk didn't fail it. Um, so when, what is it, Savik? Savik. Savik. 
You would think I could get this right. <laughs> so when Savick questions if the test was a viable one, uh, seeing how there is no way to win, Kirk says a no-win situation is a possibility that every captain must face. How we deal with death is at least as important as how we deal with life. So that kind of gets us to our setup that we're going to see in this movie some seemingly no-win situations and we're also going to deal with life and death. So it's kind of like our premise that they set us up with. So in the next sequence, we get our next theme, which is now Admiral Kirk. Fancy. He, I know, I just like saying it all fancy style. Uh, he's getting birthday gifts from Spock and from Bones, right? And the mood is actually kind of captured by Bones, right? He starts asking, why are we treating your birthday like a funeral? <laughs> so they quickly kind of talk about uh, old age in that sequence, but it is a theme that comes up a lot uh, throughout the movie. So let's talk about the old age theme kind of in relation to the movie. So Kirk is surrounded by antiques. That's what he surrounds himself with. Uh, Bones is worried that if he stays on simulation exercises and not getting out into the galaxy, that he's going to become one of the antiques on the wall. So he, Bones urges him to take commands back of Enterprise. Um, so the other theme that we have is, a, well, it's not a theme, it's within the old age. It's a hero becoming the mentor. Um, and this is something that I talk a lot about on Kate's Take. Uh, we talked about it when, uh, when Will and I covered the Rocky series. We also talked about it a lot with Star Wars, too. The, the mentor and the hero, and the hero needing the mentor. Um, but the, the one thing that we see in movies is this transition of the hero becoming the mentor. Um, a lot of times it's not really that accepted. Uh, because we have few stories that actually show a successful hero to mentor situation. Um, we kind of see that mentors are being put out to pasture, you know, uh, that they become only databases now to young students. Um, what they really are, what mentors are, are heroes, um, who have survived and they have valuable lessons, um, to teach us and to, to reach to us. Well, what are some good examples and bad examples in film of heroes and mentors? So the good, the one that we, you know, like and accept a lot of us is in the Star Wars series. We've got Obi-Wan and Yoda, right, as mentors. Um, we accept their transition from Jedi to Jedi trainer because they went into hiding, right? Um, it's also Luke Skywalker finds both of them and he gains wisdom from them. Um, so the audience kind of accepts, okay, Obi-Wan and Yoda are the mentors. Now it does help because the movies were told out of order <laughs> and there's a different actor for Obi-Wan, right? You know, when he's a mentor versus when he's a hero, when he's a Jedi. Um, a bad example is Rocky V now. I love Rocky V. <laughs> Rocky V is probably one of my favorites, but it's a movie uh, that was very hated <laughs> because it was Rocky trying to become the mentor. And the audience didn't accept it. The characters in the movie didn't accept it. Uh, we weren't ready for that transition of Rocky to no longer be fighting to then become uh, basically Mick, right? He tries to become Mick to Tommy Gunn, and he fails. And then he realizes that he needs to become a mentor to his son. And that's why I love it. That's why I think it's the most worst example and the best example, because we still, as a culture, don't accept our uh, heroes to then become our mentors. Um, that's kind of that uh, transition. So should this movie have been where they let Kirk transition to that mentor status? Go from hero to, to mentor? I don't think so. 
Um, and it's mostly because Kirk still wanted to go on adventures and we were still ready to go on adventures with him. So we weren't ready to see him transition into that mentor. So it kind of worked. I like that they touched on it just a little bit. Like this is a moment where he could then become the mentor with the simulation uh, with students. But we all kind of knew, plus it was second movie, you know. It wasn't like this is a trilogy and they're going to be done. No. <laughs> Everybody kind of knew at that point. So, um, so I think that's actually great in this situation because uh, there is no predeterminate age at which then you decide, you know, you're going to become a mentor. Um, it's one of those things where a hero that's not willing to go on the adventures anymore, um, that wants to, you know, step away from the adventures and instead spending their time teaching others uh, what they have learned on their adventures, that's when it's that transition uh, from hero to mentor. So the a, lot, the a lot of the movie revolves around Project Genesis. Yes. So what is... Project Genesis. Project Genesis. All right. So I like how you're asking me. Like, I'm an expert in the Project Genesis. You watched the movie, too. I did watch the movie, too. But, of course, I had to look at the Star Trek wiki. Because <laughs> it's, like, defining Project Genesis. All right. Hold on. So uh, so we've got Chekhov and Terrell, right? They are on the Starship Reliant, and they're trying to find a test site for Project Genesis. Um, and it is the process from the Star Trek wiki. <laughs> the process to bring life to a dead planet by means of genetic explosion which reduces the surface of a planet to its elementary particles. See, they worded it better than I did. <laughs> it's a device that kills everything and then bring everything back to life. Didn't sound as fancy as they had it. Um, so what Chekhov and Terrell are doing is they're trying to find a dead planet where there's not a single particle of life um, so that they can then test the Genesis device to see if it will bring life back to the planet. So they're, uh, they're, just, they're looking at this planet, which is SETI Alpha 6, um, to see if it's going to be a viable one, um, if there's anything left back on the planet or anything that they can... At least they were also talking about transplanting, if they found right. one particle of life to take that off of there and possibly or bring it somewhere a else. A piece of preeminent matter caught in the Matrix. Oh, yeah. That see. was the other possibility that Chekhov comes up with because he's sick of... He's sick of finding the, yeah, to the find tour. The perfect planet, yeah. <laughs> he wants to cut off the tour, basically. Yeah. Um, so Chekhov and Terrell, they check out SETI Alpha 6, and they end up finding Khan, right? They end up finding our villain and his crew from Botany Bay. And this, of course, relates back to the original yeah. Star Trek TV series with Spacey. Which is interesting because what they do is they kind of create a sequel from uh, the episode, um, which is really neat. So after watching this film, which I have, feel like I have seen many, many times, uh, before marrying this one, my, my father also watched the Star Trek movies a lot, especially Wrath of Khan. I feel like this one was on like TBS, you know what I mean, like quite frequently. It was played a lot on TV. Of all of them, this one yeah. seemed to be. So, uh, but I had never watched Space Seed, the 1967 um, so we actually, we watched, he watched it again, it was first time for me. And it really does kind of give you some of the backstory of why Khan is so crazy. It kind of explains his crazy a little bit. But you don't have to see the episode to understand uh, Wrath of Khan on its own, which is, you know, very nice that they did that uh, for us as well. So you're a Trekkie. What did you see first, if you remember? Did you see the film first, or did you see the episode first? I saw the film first. You saw the film first? Yeah, because... When I started getting into Star Trek was was eighties or not late eighties nineties right it was before nowadays when you can just go on Netflix and pull up every episode so unless it was on t v or at the video store or at the video store, you wouldn't see it and so I 
started with the the movies and then got into the TV series after seeing the. I guess two would have been the first movie I saw because one almost never got played for, for <laughs> probably good reason. Couple of reasons. <laughs> and so it was probably two was the first one that I saw, and that's when I started. Yeah, going back and, and this was eighty-two, so that yeah. seems about right. Well, I, I wouldn't. You have were seen five-ish. It. No, I wouldn't have seen it when it was new. I that's would have true. Seen it on TV. I, I would have been six. <laughs> seen it on TV with everybody else. Yeah, yeah exactly. So, uh, so we get to know Khan's story within the concept of the movie, uh, which is he is a genetically engineered superhuman, and boy, is he proud of it. <laughs> but he's been marooned on SETI Alpha Spot on five. There we go, which has merged with six. Well, it exploded and then six was ex- kind of six exploded, in. and then five moved into the position where six was. If that's correct. Yeah, that sounds about right. If we got the numbering right. <laughs> uh, but, he, but he does blame James T. Kirk for everything that has happened to him. That is very clear. Um, so, But he's upset that James did not uh, check on him like he said he was going to, and that he basically left him and his crew to die. So should we mention now the largest continuity error between the 1967 TV episode and the 1982 movie? What do you mean that? Khan and Chekhov never met each other? Oh, yeah. No, we shouldn't mention it. So moving on. <laughs> uh, that moves us to our next theme, uh, which is the dish that is best served cold. Revenge, right? So revenge is a big theme within this movie, and we see that mostly through Khan. Uh, Khan puts the those native creatures, those bug things in the ear giving me ear problems for the rest of my life. You know, wet willies are not happening. They give me way too much of creeps, probably because of this movie, actually. Uh, But it makes Chekhov and Terrell submissive to Khan, right? So then they are now mind-control puppets that he can play with. Um, And he does this, and he finds out about Project Genesis, and he also finds out where Kirk is, or at least how... He can get Kirk to him, right? So uh, Khan has Chekhov call Regular One, which is the home of Project Genesis, uh, which is basically like, like if they're on tour, it's their manager. They got to check in with the boss man. <laughs> uh, and they, Chekhov, asks for all materials relating to Project Genesis upon their arrival in three days. Uh, they said that SETI Alpha 6 has checked out. Uh, and they are waiting for testing. Now, Khan knows that regular one will call and double-check this, and will actually call Kirk to confirm this, because the orders came from James T. Kirk, supposedly, and that will then bring Kirk to Khan. Very smart. <laughs> he's a smart guy. Yeah, well, he's genetically engineered superhuman, so at least they're proving it, right? So, meanwhile... Uh, Kirk is back on Enterprise and he's on a three week training mission nothing exciting is supposed to happen on a three week training mission oh wait (laughs) so uh, we get some recycled footage from uh, Star Trek the motion picture you know money well spent Uh, we also get an awkward uh, moment with Savik Savak Savik every time I'm just permanently I'm just gonna mess it up now Savik but we get that awkward moment in the elevator uh, and then Kirk gets a call 
from Dr. Marcus asking why he's taking the Genesis project. But apparently she's in a tunnel and the cell reception isn't that good in space. <laughs> so uh, a lot of things drop out, you know. Uh, so the transmission is cut short, but as always, I don't know how this happens, they are the only ship in the quadrant that can answer the call. <laughs> it happens, I accept it, but at the same time, I wish there was just a little bit of... <laughs> that's one of those things they could have easily fixed by just saying they're the only ship available in the quadrant. But when you say they're the only ship in the quadrant, it's like, is there only four ships? It's, it's, right. It makes you seem like there's, like, is it just Enterprise out there? <laughs> yeah. It, that's, that's, it's them and two other guys, and that's it. Yeah. Because yeah, I always pictured Starfleet as quite big. <laughs> I believe now it's three ships. I think it's Enterprise Reliant, and then one we maybe we'll find out about later. Maybe later. <laughs> so then... Three operating ones at one time. The, like, that's it. No more than that. It, they're expensive yeah. to make. They're, well, yeah, they're expensive to make, because, you know, I, I saw every nook and cranny of it in the motion picture. <laughs> there you go. Uh, but yeah, so we see Kirk take command of the Enterprise, yep. which we all see coming. <laughs> but at the same time, you know, uh, that is actually part of Hero's Journey. Uh, Hero's Journey by Joseph Campbell talks about a hero uh, is not always ready for the mission that they are given. So the idea that Kirk is like, no, I'm, I'm an admiral now. I'm a teacher now. Uh, you know, I'm just going to go on this training mission, kind of gives you that hero's journey. And then when he's set with an adventure, ba-bam, back in command. <laughs> so Kirk and Bones and Spock starts what mimics a Facebook fight. I really do. I think it was a Facebook fight because you have logic on one side and you have name calling on the other. <laughs> and it's very beautiful. Uh, they debate the risk and benefit of Project Genesis, uh, being able to destroy life as well as create life. And then Reliant shows up. Of course Reliant shows up. <laughs> and so uh, Khan plays this friendly fleet member, you know. Oh, our communications aren't working. We're just like you guys to try to lure them in. Uh, but it isn't long before they are firing on the Enterprise. Uh, and Kirk offers himself to Khan uh, to spare the crew. Now, this is a part uh, that doesn't make sense to me. Okay. Um, so Khan says he will accept the offer of Kurt's surrender if he gives him all materials related to Project Genesis. Now, we know that Khan has already been on Reliant 1, a regular one, regular one, because he's on Reliant, regular one. Why are they both ours? <laughs> to mess you up. Yeah, there you go. But why does he assume Kirk has them? Well, first off, he assumes that Kirk, since he's supposedly, since he's kind of led to believe that Kirk is in charge, it's somewhat... In of charge of everything? The, yeah, <laughs> and... Had, he has Kirk has some sort of authority with the the Project Genesis, so he thinks that he's going to have the research material and the what in the the who of Project Genesis. Plus, yeah. as we will soon learn, since they've already been to Regular One and couldn't find the Genesis device, yeah. Then I my guess Khan's conclusion is that somehow Kirk has the Genesis device with him. Mm -hmm. And so that's why he couldn't find it anywhere on regular one. Still think it's weird because Khan summoned him. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, Duh! but that's okay. But it's also, sure. it's also a good way to lead into them hacking into the computer of, of Reliant and then of getting course. it to lower You shows. mean mischief? So, yeah. It's, it's just, it's, it's a, it's a basically a, a trick of the script to get them to. 
I hack into the computer. I wouldn't know what you're talking about. A trick of the script. What? <laughs> uh, so, of course, Kirk does find a way out of it because I believe he must also be a genetically superhuman person. Uh, but he finds the code to lower Khan's shields, right? Uh, and fires on them and fires on their warp drive so they don't have an ability. And also fires on their ability to fire as well. Yeah. So they can't fire and they can't go into warp drive. Um, so, of course, they, they run off because that's another thing they write in a little script thing. They're going to just run away for a little bit until they come back and we can have another epic fight sort of thing. Um, so they go off hiding while Enterprise now has time to check out Regular One. So they find Chekhov and Terrell on Regular One uh, and they use the last coordinates that were in the computer to find Kara Marcus and her small team that is left behind, including Kirk's son. Uh, and that's where it turns out that uh, Chekhov and Terrell are still brainwashed. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> they didn't just fight him off <laughs> and be put into a box. So they're still brainwashed and they're ordered to kill Kirk. And they can't do it. And Terrell turns his phaser on against himself. And for no real reason, <laughs> the bug comes out of Chekhov's ear. <laughs> that was the thing. I'm like, the other guy had to phase himself but the bug can come out of uh, Chekhov's here. So, uh, but having to fail killing Kirk, uh, Khan beams up the Genesis device and now has the ability to kill everything, uh, plant or planet or moon, um, kind of like the one you know Kirk and his entire team are on at that very moment. He would have that ability. But Khan is so revengeful that he wants to leave Kirk marooned just as Kirk left him marooned and left him to die. So this is kind of that eye for an eye situation, right? That checks and balances sort of thing. Um, now it's either because of runtime <laughs> or the fact that the villain never gives up that easily. We know that this is not the end, right? Uh, it's just a matter of time before these two actually battle some more. So then you learn that David is Kirk's son. Right. And that was Carol's son as well. And that there at one point was a relationship that... Which Kirk, isn't alluded to in this movie, but we kind of just go with just it. just slightly alluded to in the fact that, you know, she's talking about how you left and you went away. And, mm -hmm. stay, and, and she wanted him to stay away because she knew that Kirk couldn't stay in one place. He would she always be that, on an adventure somewhere, yeah. Right, she knew that that was his way of operating so she had told him to stay away from david and so that's why in the beginning of this episode or in the beginning of the movie he has no idea that kirk is his dad and that he's trying right. to kill his dad and it's kind of a little bit weebly wobbly of yeah. when he finds out <laughs> well yeah they don't really come out and say straight up. we don't see the discussion where yeah. where david learns that his dad is kirk we just know at the end that he actually recognizes it um so it but that whole discussion is kind of interesting um uh, because uh you know kirk does say you know uh you told me to stay away and i have stayed away um and that david doesn't know who his father is necessarily at least doesn't recognize right away you know that kirk is his father but what gets me is when uh, Carol is explaining her reasoning. Um, you know, she also asks Kirk what he's feeling. And it's not, he's, when he answers, it's not about his son. Uh, he says that he's thinking about the 15-year-old grudge with Khan, and he's feeling old and worn out. And I was like, really? Not a single thought of, oh, look, that's, that's my son. Uh, she told me to stay away, but now I see him, you know what I mean? And he's grown so much and thinking about what I've missed. So that, 
And what are your it, thoughts on that? That kind of well, is like Ugh. it's there for a moment in the movie when she, when he asks her, "Is that Dave?" And, and, and he, mm. you can see that there's that recognition there in him that, "Hey, that's my son." But immediately that it's just pushed is off, pushed away, and that's as you learn through the TV show and through the later, even through the later movies, Kirk's overwhelming drive is always the Enterprise. And adventure, being, yeah, an adventure, and being a captain, and yeah, and he never wants to become an admiral. Really, it was just kind of he had earned that rank, and so he took it. But he never really. It wanted. also could have been age too, because I think they said it's his fifty-second birthday in the movie or something like that. Yeah. and so he could have been like, well, at this age, I feel that I should take on. You know what I mean? But like, it's not what he actually not, wants. Right? Though. It's not what he wants. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. kind of he like is, this cultural acceptance sort of. He thing. has a very much one-track mind when it comes to being the captain of the Enterprise. That's. Right. His, basically, his def- definition of who he is is the Enterprise. Which, like I said, it makes me a little sad. <laughs> Missed opportunities. But at the same time, character is character. Um, and at least they're staying true to the he's, character, yeah, so, which I like. So, uh, but Kirk and the team, they get, uh, they get back on Enterprise because, of course, they do. <laughs> That's just the writer thing. Uh, but Reliant finds them again, and they are both headed for the nebula. Remember the glorious nebula scene uh, where they're both going super slow because no one can go into warp drive and only one of them can actually kind of fire. Uh, so, but they go there so they'd be evenly matched, right? Um, so, but Khan, he kind of needs some egging on just a little bit to try to get him into the fight. Um, and he's just, of course, blinded by revenge and basically a Moby Dick white whale kind of scenario, um, to get him back in there. Um, and by using three dimensional logic, like three dimensional chess, uh, Kirk outwits Khan and cripples his ship. So instead of surrendering, though, (laughs) instead of surrendering the Reliant, Khan launches the Genesis device, uh, which will kill everyone um, if they don't get to warp speed. Because, you know, there's a way out, right? There's got to be at least one way out. However, uh, the warp speed has uh, has been blown up. By Khan previously. So Khan is surrounded by his dead crew, and all he is thinking about is that he's going to kill Kirk. Yeah, the, the, in, my guess is that the, the issue with the Enterprise is something with the dilithium crystals. Or, oh, wow, you're going fancy. Mm-hmm. No, because that's... Bring it. That's what, <laughs> when, when Spock reaches in and fixes whatever's in the giant tube right. that radiates his face... <laughs> That is Face the, full the, of radiation. The, so he has to fix... Yeah, so that's basically the issue with the Enterprise is that they can't go into warp speed. Right. They can't get away fast enough, and so then they will be sucked into the... The thing I always find interesting in any movie about space is there comes to a point where they have to go faster than the explosion. Yeah. <laughs> Every time. Well, that's... Yeah, and then they do it in a lot of movies where you see somebody have, runs faster than the fire coming after right. them. That's... Yeah. No, it's... Yeah. Cool guys don't look at explosions. You know that song by Lonely Island? You know, it's that kind of scenario sort of yes. thing. So, yes. And then you got to do the line. Do the line that Khan says last. I spit my last breath at <laughs> He does it all the time. I like that. That is, that is one of the most quotable parts of any of the Star Trek movies no, is when, but the other is when one, Khan is, yeah. is going through. Well, then there's also the Kirk yelling Khan. No, the but, one you do, uh, uh, he's dead already. No, he's dead already. You wouldn't believe how many times that just comes up in everyday conversation. <laughs> it's very convenient. 
But it, it really my, does, especially my, with cooking when we're like making something. That's my favorite that, like, part of this. That's my one of my. This is one of my favorite movies. Is it's so quotable, and there's part, in that ten minutes. And well, not just, but the con part. The, yeah, yeah. It's it's quotable and it's it's exciting. It's fun. You don't have to necessarily be into Star Trek to necessarily get it. You didn't yeah. have to have seen the original episode just to get what's going on. Yeah, this is a good episode you can just jump into. So, a good movie you can just jump into. Whereas, you don't even really need to see the motion picture necessarily. The motion picture, that's a little this. less accessible than yeah. The Wrath of Khan is, uh, just because unless you're really willing to invest in it, it kind of is kind of The slow. 16 hours? No, I'm just it kidding. Is it's not slow. 16 hours. Well, what was even better it is... It just feels like 16 hours. <laughs> well, what was even better is when they, re-re- they re-released it at one point on VHS With and more. added another, like, 15 minutes to it. And it's like... Yeah. I, I believe it was all ship. Was it? I think it is. Yeah. They just added more ship. <laughs> and it just, you know... and But I love that movie, though. It's... It, it started it all. That's the yeah. thing. I mean, it, it relaunched the TV series to get it back on TV. It, no, it set up the movie series and it, the movies. Well, yeah. it was the first of the movies. Yeah. So I mean, and it was competing with Star Wars. So <laughs> there was all. So, but let's dig out, uh, dig into revenge for a bit, shall yeah. we? Because revenge is fun, fun to talk about. So uh, my the first bit of revenge is let's bring in some science. Because I love bringing in some science. So there's actually an article in Scientific American, and I'll quote it here. Uh, Science has shown that the human brain can take pleasure in certain kinds of revenge. An MRI scan has revealed that thinking about revenge activities... It activates the reward center of the brain. That's where the feel-good neurotransmitters, the dopamine, is actually lodged. So much in the same way that sweet foods or even drugs give you that feel-good feeling, so does thinking about revenge. (laughs) That is some science right there. Um, Also, a psychology professor, Malcolm McClure, says the interesting thing is that the desire for revenge goes up if there are people who have watched you be mistreated. The costs getting bigger. The costs are bigger, um, and if you um, act for revenge, there is a chance that people will learn what type of person you are based on how you will put up with mistreatment. So we can think about this in terms of con, but also of Kirk as well, um, because you know Khan was marooned on the planet with other people. So they were looking to him to to guide and to lead, right? So, and also, you know, he liked, Khan lost his wife uh, in this being marooned on this planet. So perhaps as a way of maintaining leadership, uh, Khan's hatred of Kirk grew and grew and grew. Uh, but then also you have Kirk and Khan challenging each other. And notice always, it's always throughout screens. These two are great at battling back and forth and never meet in person. <laughs> And you have a little tidbit that you always love, the fact of uh, why they never meet in person. Well, because um, Ricardo Montalban was still filming uh, Fantasy Island Island at the time. So Mm -hmm. he couldn't actually be on the set to film at the same time. Because I think if you look on uh, IMDb, there's tons of trivia stuff about this movie. And one of the things I think in the original script was that Khan and Kirk were actually supposed to physically fight each yeah, other. Yeah, at one point towards the end. Yeah, and so then that eventually changed, and then due to uh, the scheduling mm-hmm. with Fantasy Island, they never were even in the same 
place at the same time. So yeah, it just and I think it's, they do. I think they do a really good job of you know I mean bouncing off of each other. Yeah. As far as I, I you know it's not until you look back and realize oh they never were in the same room at the same time, um, and it was through screens, but it works. And I think that was a great performance on both hands. And I'm not one to kudos performance on William Shatner, but I just did. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but so, uh, so even though they don't, you know, meet each other sort of thing, they both always have their crew behind them, right? So whenever it's, you can say being mistreated or bullied or whatever, their leadership is always in question because they always have somebody watching them. Um, so that makes revenge harder to let go (laughs) if you're kind of held accountable by the people that follow you. Um, but it also does put more people in the target zone. Uh, because a revenge between two people, between, you know, Kirk and Khan, everybody on both sides of their crew, you know, is involved in this as well. Right. So we were kind of talking about the, the Enterprise can't go into warp speed. Right. And this is where Spock has to decide. He knows how to fix the ship. Right. And so there's that scene where they're, where they're at the computer and David's there and you just see in the background you see Kirk or Spock get up and he just walks out he has that thinking and moment. disappears and and nobody really notices it and everybody gets back to doing their tasks and everything mm-hmm. and which makes me wonder sometimes what Scotty does or what uh, Spock does on the ship no I'm just kidding because yeah. <laughs> they don't notice he's there a long time he's the science officer and they're having a good deal of problems but they don't have any questions for him quite a few minutes <laughs> until they start realizing he's not there. So they can't get into warp drive and they can't zoom away from the Genesis device that's going to, uh, that is going to explode. The radiation leak uh, has stopped Scotty and the entire crew of the engineers from working on it. But Spock gloriously has this idea because he's not fully human. So he thinks that he might be able to handle the radiation because he's Vulcan and not human and be able to repair the warp drive. Um, now, remember at the top of the show how I said this, this movie actually set us up to see some no-win situations and learn about life and death? Whoa-bam! Here it is. So uh, we have the, the bookend situation with the death of Spock in a seemingly no-win situation. And Spock indeed could not handle the radiation. And I think he knew that. <laughs> it's left up to interpretation whether you think, well, I got a 50-50 chance of whether I'll survive it, or if he knew he was going on basically a suicide mission um, and stuff. So, But he asked Kirk not to grieve as the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. Or the one. That's right. He always likes adding that on there. <laughs> but at the same time, you know, it's, it's, it's that whole Kobayashi Maru thing. It's, mm-hmm. it's you're going to... It, either you're letting the ship die, or you, you're, you know, or you or, sacrifice or you yourself. Sacrifice yourself, and mm-hmm. so in this case, logic dictates, as he always likes to say, right? The needs exactly. of the many outweigh the needs of the few. So he decided that he's going to sacrifice just himself, right, to save everybody else. It's for the greater good, exactly. That, he, that he's doing it. So, yeah, it's one of the. I don't know. For me, it's always been. As, as a Trekkie guy, one of the sadder moments in any of the movies that oh, I've ever seen is, is the is the Spock death scene at the end, and you know it's it, Kirk with his kind of corny acting and everything, but still, the, Leonard Nimoy I think really 
delivers. Yeah, he brings it. Like and, I almost think he brings it so much that William Shatner couldn't ruin it. <laughs> yeah, basically. You know, I think he was, he was like, I'm going to do everything I can so they keep their eyes on me. Keep it on me. <laughs> yeah. And, and yeah, because his little, Kirk's little, no, really irritates me. Like well, I, that's, I think that's <laughs> how they overcame the emotion of that yes. scene was by having Kirk say next to nothing. Right. Bring it Just, down. Bring it down. <laughs> but there was already, there was, there was the one in, in one of the trivia bits in IMDb earlier mm-hmm. when he's, they're putting the code into. Yeah, he was overacting it. He kept overacting it and basically giving away what was going to happen. And so they just basically had him do so many takes of that he until tired. he was sick and tired of doing it. And he just delivered it in a plain way because he was sick of doing it. And mm-hmm. so you, you got to battle against the Kirk overacting. Exactly. And you can probably only do that once because I'll bet you he was on to the director oh, at yeah, that point going, no, I know what you're doing. I'm not falling for it. <laughs> um, so in, in Spock's uh, death scene, also he asked... Um, what he asked Kirk what he thinks of his solution to his Kobayashi Maru, um, and that now Kirk will have to face something that he has cheated uh, in simulation, basically, um, and never learned how to deal with, which is how to learn to deal with death, because we have the death of Spock. Um, but Kirk doesn't like to lose. <laughs> uh, so he sends Spock towards where the Genesis device exploded right um to see if maybe possibly if this is creating a whole new planet if this is creating uh life out of death perhaps just perhaps <laughs> uh this is kirk's way of trying to cheat you know once again but exactly he is trying to cheat for the greater good um and maybe Kirk did learn how to deal with death. I mean, that is up to everybody who watches it, you know, interpretation. Um, but then again, maybe he just found another way to cheat. So, and that is up to you guys to decide. So, um, so f- those of you who are familiar with, uh, with the Kate's Take podcast, um, uh, I usually always have, uh, I pick a movie that has a lesson uh, that I've learned in my life. And a lot of times I'll see a movie and I'll learn that lesson and then I kind of relate the personal to the art. And the idea is, is that in any movie, you can find something that speaks to you through, you know what I mean, what you need to see at that moment. We all have movies and entertainment that we see and we're like, oh, that's exactly what I needed right now. Uh, I'm one of the weird ones that happens, that happens to a lot. <laughs> so therefore, I have the show. Um, so... Uh, so normally I know what that lesson is or how I'm going to tie into it when I pick the film. This time I had no idea because when we uh, were asked by Starbase to you know, cover the Star Trek movies, you start with one, you go to two, you go to three, right? You don't really think about it. Um, well, this one, Wrath of Khan, actually turned out to be extremely serendipitous. Um, you see, uh, this year my original co-host, Will, uh, he and I faced our own Kobayashi Maru just a couple of months ago. Uh, his wife passed away suddenly. Uh, she was 34. It was completely unexpected. And his life was turned upside down, just absolutely upside down. Uh, podcasting, furthest idea from his mind, not his priority, understandably so. So that left the Kate Steak show kind of hanging in the balance and kind of a no win situation. Now it's not the same as life and death. This is a podcast. And I realize that, um, but I had to deal with the, do you cancel the show? Uh, do you find a new co-host? Will the chemistry still be the same? Will the show still be the same? Uh, do I go solo? What in the world would that, you know, what would that mean? So for me, I felt like there was absolutely no winning. So, uh, so twice a year I have Josh help me out. He comes out as my 
my expert Trekkie for our live shows. And then we also do a Josh's take where he completely overtakes the show and he does a crazy movie that he enjoys that usually I hate. And you can hear the eye roll in the podcast, basically. Uh, but I knew that we couldn't do this every week. Uh, we both have very, very weird schedules and that wasn't going to work. And I thought about other co-hosts but I knew the chemistry wouldn't really be the same as what, as what Will and I had, and the show wouldn't be the same. So I, I grieved for the beautiful woman who had left us way too soon, and for her children, uh, and also for her husband that were left behind. And uh, I also was grieving the enlightening conversations that Will and I have before the show recorded and during the show. We would have a lot of goosebumps moments, like, oh, you've experienced that too, and connections and that sort of thing. Um, so I had to do a lot of soul searching and I had to decide about the fate of this very show. And for a few months, it was pretty easy. It's a podcast. Who cares? Right? Exactly. They come and go. No big deal. Uh, but then I started getting letters <laughs> and, uh, people started, you know, asking, when is the show going to come back? And, uh, the, the, the show connected to them that, you know, that it was okay to see movies in a different way, that some silly movie gave you a very good wisdom and helped you through a difficult time. Uh, the show also just like a couple of weeks ago, won two more awards, making a total of five. So that made it very difficult. So for the fans who love the show, and I love doing it, so it is a little bit for me, uh, I decided to reload the show and bring it back. So it's called Kate's Take Reloaded. Um, and I love that in this episode that I have Josh helping me and I super appreciate it. Uh, but the future for me is going solo. I will have video footage and it'll be me kind of uh, talking about a movie that inspired my life for good, bad, or ugly and teaching you how to do the same thing. So, uh, to sign off, I hope Will is out there listening, my wonderful old co-host to paraphrase the eulogy of Spock of all the souls I have encountered in podcasting. He was the best. So I wanted to thank Will for giving me this chance. Kate's Take is brought to you by Gal's Guide to the Galaxy. For more information, including links to our Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube, visit galsguide.org. 